The Me Too movement has led many people to share their experiences with sexual harassment and sexual assault. It has sparked conversations and controversy and maybe even cultural change. This is Unsettled, Mapping Me Too, a podcast from Iowa Public Radio dedicated to conversations about Me Too and its impact. I'm Charity Nebbe. Human trafficking is one of the world's largest criminal industries. It's a form of human slavery, often a form of sexual exploitation, and it's found in every state in the United States, including Iowa. Ben Kiefer of Iowa Public Radio sat down with Christina Glacken. She's an Iowan and a survivor of human trafficking who shares her story in the hope of bringing awareness to the epidemic that is human trafficking. She tells us how it all began when she was an 18-year-old living alone in Las Vegas 12 years ago. It just is still very real to me. It's never something that I even knew existed, and let alone something I thought would happen to me. Um, I had kind of a broken upbringing and um, spent a couple years in foster care and that sort of thing. Uh, so I had, you know, what I know to be called now as a, as risk factors, you know, um, things that made me more vulnerable, we'll say vulnerable, Mm -hmm. um, to having this happen. Um, And traffickers are very crafty, and they know who to target. I thought that I was this strong young woman, and everything that I had been through, I I just had this mentality that nothing would ever break me. Um, right. We, and we, when we're 18, we yeah, think that often, don't yeah, we? Yeah. We, right. we, we know everything and we're <laughs> invincible. It's a wonderful, delusional state. <laughs> um, so I was very much living in that. And I think it was just a defense mechanism and a, um, hiding my weaknesses and, um, a, a, you know, sort of pride, just trying to act like I had it all together when inside I was, I was hurting and, um, I, yeah, I turned to alcohol and, you know, men and things just to validate me and to to give me a sense of peace. And that was ultimately what led to, you know, my demise, so to speak. Um, It was a normal day. I went to the mall. I was in the food court um, and I was approached by a man who I didn't even find attractive, but... um, he asked me for my phone number, and since I knew everything, I thought, well, I could get him to, you know, buy me alcohol and that sort of thing. It was a really um, immature way of looking at it uh, without seeing any potential danger. And over the course of a few weeks, he befriended me and listened to me tell him about everything I had been through. And you thought he, this was just a friend? Yeah, he was a he was just a friend, and he was someone that would listen to me. He gained my trust. He he didn't even try and sleep with me. He just befriended me and and um, filled this void, you know, of just someone to care, someone to you know be on my side and say all those people who hurt you were wrong. Oh, he. Uh, yeah, I thought I had the upper hand, you and, know. And when did the, the dark side of this man come out? Yeah, uh, it wasn't until he, I, w- I was living in Las Vegas at the time. I was born in Iowa. Um, my 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 mom and stepdad had moved me 
uh, and my brothers to Las Vegas, um, you know, and they ended up moving back out here. I followed them until I turned 18 and then moved back to Vegas because I knew everything. Um, And so I was living there alone and he wanted me to go to L.A. with him for a concert, uh, a Jada Kiss concert, which I was not even a fan. But he told me he was going to get me a fake ID. And so I thought, hey, this is worth it. I don't have to work for two days. Um, we drove my car and it was a four hour trip. When we got there, um, he did. He took my ID. He had me put it in this folded up piece of lined notebook paper and said that they were going to scan it and get the picture and um, mm. make me one that was believable. This is and, the story he made up in yeah. order to get your ID. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when I, and, and that moment, um, you know, trying to act like I knew everything and that mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I, I didn't think it was, I, I acted like it wasn't unusual that he had me put it inside of this folded up piece of paper and he never physically touched it. Um, fingerprints, you know, yeah. <laughs> looking back. Um, but I was trying to just fit in. Um, but no, he, he took my ID and I sat there. We were in this apartment and there were other people there and I was being very quiet and um, everyone was, you know, smoking marijuana and that sort of thing, which can make you more paranoid. And I was the youngest one there. So I was just, I was trying to just explain away this dark cloud that I could feel you know, just this presence of, you know, evil, for lack of better terms. And um, this girl befriended me and um, convinced me that we should go put our purses down in my car. And when we went down to the car, uh, she took my purse and um, she sat in the back seat and I was in the front seat. And she kept saying, make sure your cell phone's in there. And I was thinking, well, maybe someone would steal it. You know, I was trying to make sense. You thought she was being concerned about it. Yeah, yeah, that's what she acted like. And um, then my friend came down to the car. This man? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he got in the driver's seat. And I was just, I mean, I was a feisty girl, but not in those circumstances. I was quiet around everybody, but um, I felt comfortable enough with him to where when he was getting in the car, I felt like I was just going to kind of give him a piece of my mind. <laughs> you know, what are we doing? Why aren't we at the concert? Um, but when he got in the car, he uh, he had a gun and he told me that he had a plan and he needed me to make him $400 that night. And then he'd give me all my stuff and I could go free. Um, what was the plan? For me to sell myself for him. Um, And I just, I remembered all the times that I was endangered throughout my childhood and all the times that I just said no. And somehow I just looked at him and I said no. And he just said, okay. And I was like, well, all right. Um, So (laughs) now what? Um. I switched spots with the girl. She was in the front seat. I sat in the back. They took me through the drive-thru at McDonald's. And I remember getting a 10-piece chicken nugget meal. And um, the drink that they gave me tasted really funny. And I was refusing to drink it. Um, I had a feeling that it was drugged, and and it was. And he kept forcing me to drink it. Um, But 
But I remember that meal so vividly because that was the last time I ate for the next seven days. For seven days, seven your last days. meal. Yeah. You were taken where? To a hotel. Mm-hmm. And um, from there, they just, uh, I mean, they continued to drug me and starve me and beat me and um, the girl would try and convince me, you know, to just just one night, he's going to let you go. You know, why are you being so stubborn? Like, it was just my fault for not giving in. And after four days of that, um, I I said, I never technically said yes. I But I did say just, just one night, just $400. And he was like, yeah. Like, why are you? Of course. Like, what? It didn't have to be this hard type of thing. And mm-hmm. um, this girl, they took pictures of me. They, she, I remember watching her post them on Craigslist and typing out this like ad, you know, and I, it was, and they gave me a different name. They said that my name was Amanda and she would answer the phone and pretend to be me and send men to the hotel room. And um, it was. It was awful. It was, um, there are no words to describe what that feels like. Can't imagine. Yeah. So you, you had been drugged. Mm-hmm. You'd been starved. Yeah. You agreed for one night. What happened after that? Well, after that, um, the next, the next morning, I remember watching him. Like, I, I don't, I don't know um exactly but it, it was a it was it was drugs i believe it was like a crack rock i was watching him take a razor blade to the outside of it and and i i was saying to him you know so when do i get to leave and he said you know we had something else come up and um 400 isn't enough now and and i was just like i i was becoming so numb but i was fighting um I was fighting. So then one night turned into um, going into the third day and they thought I was either they thought I was broken down enough or something. I don't know. They left me alone with this other girl. This girl had been so mean to me when they were present. But when they left, um, she told me that they were planning on killing me because of all the issues I was causing and that I had to get out. And I was like... How, when I, there was no contact with the outside world, they had taken it and I was so full of fear um, and just um, lacking a will to live. I, at this point, I just wanted to let my mom know I was alive and just hear her voice again. Um, It was, so she said, you got to start telling these men what's happening. She said, because either they're going to kill you or you're going to. Um, just submit to them she's like and if you do that she's like you're gonna end up like me she told me she had been there for two years oh my god and um she had been enduring that and the same thing that happened to me had happened to her and so against my better judgment because i was just like you know these men do not care about me at all um you know the, how many the, men the have John's, you seen up to that point do you think i don't know I don't know. I, I disconnected myself. I was just, it was kind of an, mm-hmm. just a defense mechanism, a numbing, you know, out of, out of body type of thing. Um, 
couldn't even say. Um, I know the the last day, that fourth day, there was about five. And the reason I know that was because I started telling them what was happening. Five men came into that hotel room. That and you were that I told them after having told been told by this uh, girl, mm-hmm. the, the friend, mm-hmm. um, uh, what the plans were for you because you yeah. were not quite cooperating with how they had yeah. thought. Yeah. You were telling the men, the buyers, the Johns yes. who yes. were coming in. What did you say to them? Um, you would think that I would say, you know, get me out of here. You know, these people are holding me, but I just. Um, I was so timid because I was so broken down and afraid. And so, um, in all honesty, I would just, I would say, Hey, I don't want to be here. They're sitting in my car and they're watching you come and go. And, um, I didn't sign up for this and I just want to call my mom and I would just ask to use their phone. Um, what was the reaction? They were scared. They thought either it was a sting or that they were going to get um, hurt by the traffickers. And uh, they, uh, the first four men that I told, it was just it was just a no go. They weren't willing to do anything. Um, but the, uh, the fifth, you, must, you must have been thinking, what world am I in? Yeah, I just I was disconnected from everything. Mm-hmm. I um, mentally. Um, I mean, anybody who had gone seven days without eating is going to already be that way. But enduring what I endured, I, um, right. I just, I mean, hopelessness doesn't even explain it. It's just pure darkness, you know, just of, um, no one will ever find me. No one will ever see me again. No one knows where I am. Someone finally did help you. Yeah. This was another um, man, a buyer, a uh, John, a man who hired you for sex and came yeah. into that same hotel room. Mm-hmm. And um, one, like, I just want to say, like, God can use anybody because um, he used Adam that day, a man who was doing something that is awful. You think about a man, you know, buying sex. But but when he heard that I did not want to be there and that they were holding me. I just remember watching him stand up so straight and so tall, and he just was like, I'm going to get you out of here. And I was just like, you're crazy. <laughs> there's there's no way. They're watching. Um, he left the hotel room, and he scoped it out, and he said, there is a back alleyway. And if um, you count to 300 and then go down, go to the left down this hallway and down these stairs, I'm going to be there to pick you up in a black car. Um, and I was just like, no, I was like, they're going to come right back to the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like, I'm going to call. I'm going to say that I want to see you again. And I just have to go to the ATM that way. Nobody comes back. And I was just like, I mean, I was petrified. I was, I was petrified if it wasn't for his will to see me live. Um, I, I would not be here today. Um, and I remember standing in front of that wooden door and counting, trying to count to 300 I mean um and I I tiptoed down the hallway I I didn't run it was I looking back it's just like I I just want to yell at myself you know run um I tiptoed and I stood I remember in this alleyway there's a chain link fence across across from the alley I remember looking to the right and seeing no one looking to the left and seeing no one and then thinking do I just run now um, I looked back to the right and Adam came speeding up and got me in his car and we went and he took me and fed me Fruit Loops. <laughs> and, um, when did you know you were safe? Um, 
I heard my mom's voice. You called her immediately? Yeah. Um, and then we called authorities. And um, we, we didn't tell the entire truth because I didn't want Adam to get in trouble. So we said that I had ran to a gas station and he helped. And, um, you know, I was not treated very well by authorities at all. Um, so this was reported to the police yes, on that same day? On that same day. How were you um, treated by the police in, in Las Vegas? Well, um, and this was actually, this was in L.A. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Because right. um, um, he had moved me. And the one thing that I, I people should know before I forget, traffickers move around their, their victims um, to, to disconnect them from everybody and everything that they know. Um, but it, um, the one thing they did right was had a female officer talk to me. Um, but I just remember, and they didn't, they didn't arrest me or, or say that I was a prostitute. They knew my story was true, yet the, the stigma, I guess, they just, this, this officer said to me, um, after telling her everything, and this is all she took away, was, your mom let you live in Las Vegas alone at 18? And it's like, I was, um, technically an adult, and, um... I should be able to do that without risk of being um, held against my will and forced to sell myself, you know? I should, that it wasn't my mother's fault. Um, I took them back to the hotel um, that I was at. There was evidence there. there were, you know, their fingerprints all over my vehicle. The perpetrator um, and this other woman, yes. they were gone in the meantime? They they left. When they found they out that I was, was gone, up. they knew. And they, they fled. Um, have, I, yeah. have, did they, were they caught? Was no. This, no? Never? Never. As far as you know, they're both out there. Yep. Yep. I'm Charity Nebbe, and this is Unsettled, Mapping Me Too from Iowa Public Radio. Right now, we're hearing from Christina Glacken, who survived being sold for sex. As the conversation continued, Ben Kiefer asked her what saved her. Uh, Jesus. <laughs> um, for seven years, I suffered um, severe panic attacks, anxiety, just anger. Um, one night, I... I just cried out to God, and um, that was in March 2013, and uh, I just remember just saying, God, if I'm going to live, like you have to do it for me, and I, I didn't know anything about God, you know, um, but uh, I woke up that next morning with this, this just peace and this joy and just, like, I had just experienced love for the first time, and um, I knew that because I always, I always knew God existed, but I just thought he hated me because of everything I had gone through. Um, but God didn't put me through that, you know. But God brought me through it. And um, it's been five years. And um, all my desires have changed. I haven't had a panic attack, not one. And I couldn't get through a day before. And you're, um, help, you're helping and others. I'm helping others. My pain has a purpose in Christ now. Um, whereas I thought that it, it was just going to destroy me. Um, and so now I have a brand new life, <laughs> you know, a new creation. Um, and you have, t- you have just, two kids. And I have two kids and they're wonderful. And, um, you know, I never have to wonder how I'm going to raise them or anything because like I, I, I pray a lot and I see God just moving in them um, and just see their 
their love for me and um, the way that that God loves them and that they love the Lord. It's just like they're um, like they're starting out with the answer to all of their issues instead of having to find it later, you know. That was Christina Glacken, a survivor and an Iowan. I'm Charity Nebbe. Ben Kiefer also spoke with Stephen O'Mara, who is with the Nebraska Attorney General's Office and prosecutes cases of human trafficking, and Sister Shirley Finneran, an assistant professor of social work at Briarcliff College in Sioux City and a founder of the Siouxland Restoration Center. As the conversation continued, he asked about how common Christina's story is. You know, I prosecuted these cases for about seven years and uh, thought we were really dealing with a lot of it. We came to find out through a study conducted by Creighton University that we literally were not even touching the tip of the iceberg. So let's just talk about Iowa. In any given month, there are about 1,000 ads on the Internet for commercial sex. Of those, about 18% are at high risk of being victims of sex trafficking, so that's roughly 180. 46% are at high risk and moderate risk of being victimized in sex trafficking, and that's the group that I would be most interested in with law enforcement. So that would be about 464, and actually... Up to 70% of those 1,000 or roughly 700 people show indicators of being victimized. And it's actually even worse than that because the Internet is usually rated at about 20% of the advertisement, the victimization, sex trafficking. So there's really about another 20% on top of that 180 or 464 or 700 people in any given month that might be victimized in Iowa. Mm -hmm. We heard from Christina such a powerful story. Tell us, we've heard the victim side here. It's hard to imagine people doing this to other people. Uh, Tell us, what about these profiles? Who are the traffickers? Well, it's, it's really hard to make a profile of a trafficker when I do training on this still. Uh, I put up often a collage of of faces of people who have been convicted. It's about 40% women, 60% men. It cuts across uh, all racial or ethnic backgrounds. It ranges in age from 17 years of age to 60 years of age. So it's really hard just walking down the street to do a profile you have to look more, again, at the background of the individual and the activities of the individual to really identify them. And as I understand it, Stephen, they, they work in tandem or sometimes in trios. To the, the idea here is what can you do to gain the trust and then bring someone to the point where they're most vulnerable, right? So you can have a man and a woman working together, sometimes working with someone else uh, to, to gain the trust of a victim? There's a, there's a book out there that's actually put out to train people how to be, they say pimp, I'll say trafficker. Uh, law 5 of that book is to prey on the weak. And I think that's part of what Christina was trying to get at, that she had these vulnerabilities in her life 
and that is certainly what they go after. Um, but that's really, that is part of the story that it's classic, the enticement and then what virtually is kidnapping. But clearly, statistically, but also I have dealt in cases in Iowa and Nebraska with people that were just straight out kidnapped. They were just, to they weren't enticed at all. They were just straight out kidnapped and taken into sex slavery. And then also you have to think about the children under 18 years of age who are trafficked. Uh, the youngest person uh, at the beginning of their trafficking that I've dealt with now is was six years of age when she began being trafficked. Uh, and there's a really notorious case out of a town of 125 people in southern Nebraska where a 30-some-year-old mother was trafficking her 14-year-old daughter, her 7-year-old daughter, and beginning to traffic her 9-year-old niece. So that's a little different model of, of how this occurs. So there's a number of models, but generally the, the law looks at force, fraud, or coercion, which you might think of as being kidnapped into the situation, being tricked into the situation, or being enticed or groomed into the situation. How can this exist? And sure, many people like myself are listening to this conversation, listening to Christina's story, and saying, how can this exist in such numbers? You've named the stats here in Iowa, in our towns. We, How can this be allowed to happen? How can it go unnoticed? What are we not seeing? What are some red flags? Well, the, wow. Um, <laughs> That's a really complex and deep question that you just asked, Ben. Um, first of all, we always train people, if there are no buyers, there is no sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. So if you want to start somewhere, that's really a place to begin. Secondly, if we did a better job as a society at looking at the vulnerabilities that characteristically expose people to being victimized, not only in sex trafficking, but things like sex trafficking. So issues with definitely youth, uh, and I would refer here to those in your audience that would understand what adverse childhood experiences are. Also, children missing from care, we used to say runaways, are highly at risk people suffering from mental health issues, people suffering from intellectual or cognitive um, dysfunction, uh, addiction, poverty, especially homelessness, and other things which tend to isolate people. We just simply don't pay enough attention to that and do enough about that. So there's the demand and the supply side of this. But oh. there's other factors. Mm -hmm. One is that Human traffickers don't think law enforcement is going to come after them. There's a study out, a national study, that showed that a large percentage of drug traffickers in eight major U.S. cities actually switched to being human traffickers to being sex traffickers because the money was just as good and they didn't think they would get caught. So the, 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 law enforcement simply has to do a better job than it is doing not only in terms of ramping up proactive enforcement, but also learning how to establish a genuine trust relationship with the persons who are being victimized. And then finally, uh, I will quote 
a survivor that I dealt with quite a bit, and I shouldn't say I, we from the Omaha Child Exploitation Task Force uh, dealt with quite a bit, and in a public setting, uh, when asked what this individual attributed what happened to her, her answer was the change in the values of the community. That's a quote. Mm -hmm. So all of those things and more are why this happens. We have to have intervention, which would be treatment and enforcement, but treatment and enforcement will not get us out of this. We have to have that plus more, and we tend not to do plus more. This is Unsettled, Mapping Me Too. I'm Charity Nebbe. If you suspect human trafficking in your area, you can call 888-373-7888 and register your concern with the National Human Trafficking Hotline. As Ben Kiefer continued to talk with Omera, who prosecutes cases of trafficking, he asked, who are the buyers? Who are the people hiring women for sex? And are they aware that these women have been abducted, coerced, drugged, or starved? I think, personal opinion based on my experience, that most of the people who are buyers uh, don't want to know. And consequently, they do not know. They're more interested in purchasing the commercial sex than knowing what the background of the individual is. Uh, as to who they are, they're anybody and everybody, predominantly male, but certainly some females. In one sting operation that the task force that I was uh, main prosecutor for federally, uh, in the first 15 minutes or so of the sting operation, which was a buyer sting, the three buyers that were caught were a medical doctor, a civil engineer, and another professional person whose profession I forget. So you just, you can't limit any of this. In another big case we did where a 14-year-old child was actually being taken out of a middle school and taken to prostitution appointments, we were able to get into the case and to break it because she was being taken to service to provide sex acts for a group of laborers who had come up from St. Louis to work in the Omaha Council Bluffs Metro on mega construction sites. There are many construction sites in this area, and they really attract a lot of men who are away from home with money to spend. Uh, so it just it, it runs the gamut. When I get to Sir, uh, Sister Shirley Finneran is with us, uh, as I mentioned, uh, she works at the uh, uh, Briarcliff University, Director of Field Education, Assistant Professor of Social Work, a sister of St. Francis of Dubuque, founder of the Siouxland Restoration Center. Uh, sister Shirley, uh, tell us about your work uh, and, and your plans for, especially for helping survivors of sex trafficking. You're, uh, you're working on uh, a house uh, where Correct. survivors can, can find, uh, well, uh, a path to recovery. Right, right. First of all, Christina, I want to thank you for your brave um, sharing of your story. And I think uh, your listeners can tell that, that that trauma never leaves a person, mm -hmm. even though there's some healing um, that has happened. Yeah. Um, and I also want to add um, to Stephen, um, greetings to you. And also a, a big um, area that, that um, I know that you know about but didn't talk about was that many people are trafficked and are groomed through social media. That's really 
the main area right now that that young people are groomed. Um, and as Christina talked about, you know, the age. And teenagers are, are very risk-takers at the time when they try out new things, and that's why traffickers uh, target young people because they don't really have the cognitive ability to make positive choices all the time and often think um, this is going to be a one-time kind of, of uh, thing that they have to do. And, Christina, that was pretty much what you had also shared. So a lot of people don't get into it thinking this is going to be long-term. Mm-hmm. So Lila May's house is, um, uh, we're not open yet. We're still renovating and still trying to raise money for um, the renovation. We were donated a house. Um, and so we are um, uh, going to provide a safe and healthy environment where adult survivors of sex trafficking can rest, heal, and recover and develop life skills to become empowered, independent, and self-sufficient women. Uh, we will be um, taking women who have been already uh, rescued or have left the life and um, have um, will have been sex trafficked uh, in the United States uh, will be our target. We hope to help seven women uh, live uh, at Lila May's house for a period of two years. And, um, and during that time, we hope that that will be a place where they can um, experience care and concern and also learn the skills that they need to be able to live the rest of their life as best they can uh, with what they have experienced. What are those things that survivors of sex trafficking, human trafficking, need that you plan to provide? What are the key things? Well, first of all, that somebody um, really cares about them and loves them, and I know that that is, that is hard for people who have been um, traumatized to, to realize um, because they haven't experienced that necessarily in their life. And so uh, really to be to be given the skills to um, be able to be an independent person mm-hmm. and to make good choices and really even just understanding what trafficking is. Um, a lot of them uh, don't really necessarily understand what has happened. And so part of that is what we're going to be able to do, to give them um, control um, because many people have, have not had control of themselves. They've been controlled. And so um, that deep trauma um, is something that I've come to understand just will always be part of a person's life. And even though there may be a lot of healing and, um, and a lot of um, self-sufficiency uh, that they hopefully will experience, that deep trauma is, is always going to be there. So that's something that we really will be able to offer our women to deal with. The, the, it's called complex trauma. And so um, that's something that many people are being trained to be able to do. Christina, tell us, what did you need uh, after that nightmarish experience in 2007 that wasn't provided? Give us some hints on how we, as individuals, as a society, can, can do better. Absolutely. First and foremost, I needed someone to tell me that I was a victim because I wasn't treated like one. Someone to acknowledge what happened to me and that it wasn't my fault. Um, I did need that that love and that care and someone to come alongside me. But more than anything, because afterward, um, no call, no show for my job for an entire week. I lost my job. Um, I ended up losing my home 
because the girl I was rooming with, her uncle, owned it. He didn't think it was safe for me to be there. Um, so I became homeless and without a job and tried to pick myself up by my own bootstraps. I needed services there. I needed a safe house, you know, a home I could go to. And I didn't have to worry about those things. And I could take the time to heal and process. Um, and I needed someone to show me the love of God, you know, and just and it, it that type of deep trauma and those deep wounds, um, it does take supernatural healing, you know, to get there. So that's, that's what I needed. Um, and yeah, I just, someone to say it wasn't my fault and to come alongside me and prove that, you know. Mm -hmm. Stephen, uh, back to you, back to identifying this in our communities, uh, small towns, large towns, it happens everywhere. Uh, what can we as individuals do in, in terms of recognizing what, what should we be on the lookout for and what should we do when we think we see something suspicious? Uh, let's do the last one first. So if you think you see something, uh, 911, uh, even though law enforcement needs to be better trained to handle these kind of cases, and Iowa is working on that, mm-hmm. uh, 911 in an urgent situation, do not try to intervene yourself. Uh, actually, the whole scenario that Christina spelled out, she was right to be apprehensive. They were very fortunate that everything worked mm-hmm. out as well as mm-hmm. it did. Call 911. There's a national hotline number that actually does work, although there's a little bit of a delayed response. 888-3737-888. And there are a couple of lines in Iowa that deal with... Uh, Uh, helping people, and I apologize, I don't have those right at my fingertips, but there are numbers to call. In terms of what to look for, uh, particularly situations that are inappropriate with regard to youth, particularly at uh, hotels or motels, uh, but also within the family home, if, if there's a sudden change in attendance at school, if there's a sudden increase in, in having electronics or other nice things or money, uh, relationship with an older man, things that are just, none of these prove sex trafficking, but they're things to look for. A couple of things that anybody could see, there are some tattoos that are really telltale in curious situations. One is a barcode. How sad. But people being branded with a barcode, they are a commodity. Uh, Christina spelled that out beautifully. Uh, also, a uh, dollar sign behind the ear because that's what this person has become, is a dollar sign to someone. And again, Christina spelled that out beautifully. We have to confront this, uh, get rid of this exploitation. Christina, I, I have to look at you again and say, what a courageous woman. And we are so happy that you got yourself out of that situation and you are, what would you say? You are happy? I, I, am, <laughs> I am so glad that God saw it fit for me to live and to turn my pain into a purpose. That is the voice of Christina Glacken, a survivor of human trafficking. Also speaking with Ben Kiefer on this episode, Stephen O'Meara, retired human trafficking coordinator with the Nebraska Attorney General's Office, Sister Shirley Finneran, director of field education and an assistant professor of social work at Briarcliff University in Sioux City, and also a sister of St. Francis of Dubuque. This is Unsettled, Mapping Me Too, a podcast from Iowa Public Radio produced by Caitlin Harrop, 
Lindsay Moon, and Emily Woodbury. I'm Charity Nebbe.